Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders, coming directly from my rather chilly tarantula room this morning. Unfortunately, we've been experiencing some ridiculously low temps in Connecticut. We've hit zero degrees two nights in a row. One of the days, I believe the high was about seven. And unfortunately, we figured this out last year when we moved into this house. The majority of the house is forced hot air, and the tarantula room is actually baseboard heated and this happened a couple times last year where unfortunately it got so cold outside that the boiler was keeping our regular house warm but apparently there wasn't enough warm water left to keep the tarantula room warm or at least not enough to keep it to the temperature that I currently have it set at this happened a couple the first time it happened last year I freaked the heck out I came up I remember I was getting ready for bed and I go up to turn the light off and I get up here and I'm like, wait a minute, it seems a little chilly up here. And I look at the temperature and it was like 63 degrees and I panic. We're freaking out. I had a space heater that I used to use in the old tarantula room at my old house that we broke out, put in here, kind of took the chill out of the air. And then by morning it was back running again because the temperature kind of warmed up a bit outside and the heat was able to keep up with both the main house and my tarantula room. Well, unfortunately, I knew this was going to happen. So we had the... So we had the space heater hooked up ahead of time, ready to roll, set it like 68 degrees just in case it dipped too low. The first day it happened, it maintained like 69, 70 degrees around there, dipped maybe a little bit to like 66 for a little while, but then went right back up. So no big deal. And and do know tarantulas can and spiders can deal with the lower temperatures. Now, we're not talking about 40 degrees in here, 30 degrees, but we're talking about if it dips into the 60s for a little while, it's not going to harm them. However, I think all of us, myself included, get to that point where we're so used to keeping our animals a little bit warmer that when things get cooler and we start detecting that it's cooler, we freak out. And I'm not going to lie, it got a little worrisome last night because we actually had a fire in the fireplace, which cut down. The heat wasn't running as much. The heat back here in here went up. It was nice. It was nice and toasty. I went to bed. The heat was right where I wanted it. I got up this morning. I'm in here now. It's about 65 degrees. So again, not to a point where I would freak out, especially because I know as it warms up here, everything will catch up and the heat will go back on. But it does worry a little bit, even though I know better. So do know if this something like this happens, I've had people that I've talked to that they've lost heat for a little while during the winter time. If the temperatures dip for a little while, your your spiders, as long as it, obviously if it gets to the freezing or 40 degrees, that could be too stressful for them. But if it dips down into the 60s, even the high 50s for a little bit, as long as it doesn't stay that way and goes back up, they're going to be fine. Ironically, and what kind of had me worried is I came up here this morning and found four different animals that had molted. And included with those animals were two of my Huntsman Spider, my H Maxima Thai Cave or H Thai. I noticed the name of these guys is changing a little bit more and more each time to distance them from the actual H Maxima, which they are probably not now I'm realizing. But anyway, two of those guys molted and two of my wandering spiders also molted. And so it shows you, even if it gets a little cold, they still do their normal normal spidering things. I was feeding the other day up here, and as I was up here feeding, it was dipping down into the 60s. Everybody was eating. Everybody ate, was doing fine. So I'm not panicked, but Billy and I spent the morning looking around for some auxiliary heat up here. My only real fear at the moment is that if we did have a stretch where it, say, was zero degrees for several days in a row, that if the heat didn't kick on up here, what happens is it goes off a little bit at night when the heat's running really hard, and then as it warms up during the day, it comes back on, so everything heats back on. But say we had a stretch where it wasn't on, then it would be a problem because then it could easily hit 50s or 40s up here. So we got to figure out something in the meantime. we got colder weather coming up next week, but just a little stress for first thing in the morning. I sat down. I was all ready to do the podcast. I'm like, oh, we're sitting there shopping for heat for an hour. 
So the sun's out now. It's supposed to hit like 20 or 30 degrees later on. I'm sure everything will catch up. So hopefully it happens while I'm up here. I'm hearing the the baseboard heaters kind of crackle and pop around me, which should mean there is now warm water or at least, you know, at least warm water, hopefully hot water running through them. Temperature will start going up and I can stop worrying about it. But I do, I've heard from other people over the course of the winter that have had situations where either the heat's gone out or they've had it really, they live in cold. This used to happen at our old house. We had an older drafty, even though they replaced the windows, they replaced them with the kind of probably the cheapest possible vinyl windows you could possibly get. So there was always little cracks and crevices and wind coming through, especially if it got windy and cold out. And we had a very difficult time maintaining the temperature in the house. So if you live in a home like that, I was lucky that the tarantulas were in a room away from the main living room. So what would happen is when the living room heat would constantly run to try to keep up with the cold temperatures outside, that would keep the tarantula room nice and toasty. I just had to run a humidifier in there because things would dry out very, very quickly. But if you're somebody that's in a house like that, yes, it can be a little bit stressful when you start watching that thermometer plummet. And next thing you know, it, your nice and toasty 75 degree room is now 65, is now 64. Believe me, I totally get it. Uh, that's why we have the space heater in the other house just in case for those times where the sometimes what would happen is the heat wouldn't kick on in the living room because it wouldn't be cold enough and then the transform would get colder so we had the space heater to do that fortunately not quite big enough for this room here but it's it's taking the edge off and i i don't know if it's just in my head but it feels like it's getting a little warmer in here so we'll go with that so our main topic today what we'll be talking about and again it kind of came to me through comments and emails I've dealt with later, but tarantula hybridization. It's something that's, it's a very, very hot button topic in the hobby. I've kind of covered it a little bit before, but it's always a good one to kind of revisit for folks because I do think there is a general, I think for a lot of people, there is a misunderstanding of why people are so against or the majority, the vast majority of the hobby is so against it. And it falls in line with our thought process that many of us or many people in the hobby kind of hold on to that idea that we are going to be the ones that keep these animals. We're in the middle. I read an article. I didn't read the whole article because quite frankly, it depresses me, but we're talking about the fact that we're entering another mass extinction. We know that many of the species we adore are critically endangered in their natural habitat. Sadly, and this would be another whole argument, something I've been taking notes for, we do contribute to that as much as we like to think that, you know, obviously we have a lot of captive bred animals in Europe and we import them in the United States. There are still folks out there selling wild caught. There are still folks out there that when a new spider is discovered, they go out, they grab it out of the wild and they grab a bunch of them out of the wild and start breeding them, which takes away even more from that dwindling wild population. So with all of that in mind, I think a lot of us see us as kind of the ones that are, it's someday there could be a point, you know, 20 years down the road, 50 years down the road, whenever it may be, that many of these species are will only be found in personal collections. And that's a sad thing to think about. And it's one of those, I don't want to say excuses. It, it can be wielded as an excuse, but it's one of the, things that we use to convince ourselves that when we get these animals and we find out that, hey, you know what, they just pulled a bunch of, I don't know, B. Cimaroxagorums out of the wild to breed. And this is a legit thing. They were discovered and people were going there. And I talked to people that live in the area and they said there'd be people there collecting them out of the wild. And then we go, you know what, but it doesn't matter because we're using those wild caught specimens to create a captive bred population of them. And then soon, even if they go extinct there, they'll be in our collections. But it's that weird kind of situation where, okay, yes, we're going to breed them. We're going to create more of them. But at the same time, we are contributing to the problem. So 
it, it, we try to rationalize and we've got when I went on with Louise Roquet and we had a big discussion about the hobby and trying to be informed this kind of came up and I know I've covered it before but it's one of those things I, I find myself believing at times and then I talk to people from other countries and see how much we're actually pulling from the wild and it kind of scares me and I realize that we are part of it but anyway the reason that, you know this becomes such a hot button topic is because we see ourselves as the curator as these of these species and of species purity and when folks go out there and breed them and crossbreed whether it be by accident or in some sad cases purposefully breed them to try to create a quote-unquote hybrid it pollutes the gene pool so we have a situation where with many species of tarantulas we don't think that we have pure specimens in the hobby they've been you know i think of t albopelosis the honduran form there's been a lot of folks that have said over the years that those have been crossbred with everything from t Voggins to other species we have the h gigas that we're not even sure which the i believe the cameroon baboon or something like that we're not even sure now how many of these have been crossbred over the years and that many of them are like referred to as hobby form now because we're not sure if they haven't bred several species of the genus Hysterocrates together, creating, you know, unwittingly creating these hybrids. So I figured this comes up a lot. And the majority of the time, I will admit, the majority of the time, it's folks who are brand new to the hobby. Many cases, ones that have come from other hobbies like reptiles, like specifically snakes is a big one. They're used to breeding designer creatures. And they come in and they're like, hey, we do designer creatures with reptiles. We do designer creatures with snakes. Let's do some designer creatures with tarantulas. And then they unfortunately struggle to understand what the big deal is when people freak out about it. So what we're going to do today is kind of do it my old school way where I used to do something called tarantula controversies on my website where I would try to take a controversial topic. I would try to present both sides of it. For me, I always like it. And this comes in handy too when you're when you're ever debating. Just knowing one side of the argument isn't the way to debate. You want to understand what the other people are thinking so you can be able to counter that. And so I always try to present these in a straight here's one side here's the other side and kind of as we go through come up with our final conclusion in many cases I agree with one side more than the other in some cases I will concede that there are two different ways to look at it but this one I feel pretty strongly about and I've spoken out about it before so let's get into it and I think we can start it off with the fact that Many folks, like we said earlier, they come into the hobby with the idea they've kept snakes, they've kept dogs. You know, look at now we have the all the different mutts, designer mutts we have. I, I can't call them anything else. I know there's some awesome dogs, but it just always cracks me up when people get two different breeds. Let's make sure we make that very clear. Breeds of dogs, they breed them together and they get something in this new amazing animal that everybody wants to spend exorbitant amounts of money on to have. And we look at that and then we get into tarantulas and like, why aren't we doing this with tarantulas? So one of the arguments I hear most is that cross breeding is done with snakes. It's done with dogs. Why not tarantulas? And I think, again, this is because a lot of people have come from the herp hobby. They're used to this. They're used to, I mean, look at ball pythons and the different morts. I think there are over 5,000 ball python morts. This is an animal that probably once upon a time had just the standard ball python. I know back in the 90s, I had mine right up until 2015 or something. The, the standard ball python, beautiful animals, but somebody realized, hey, this one came out with a different pattern. We're going to breed them together and get a, a totally different pattern. 
And they get into the spider hobby and they go, I want to do the same thing. Nothing would look more beautiful. I have a Brachy Pelma, Baimi, Boimi, whatever you want to call it. I have a Brachy Pelma, Hamorii. And what happens if we put those together? Wouldn't that be a beautiful spider? So if a tarantula breeder wants to mate his female Baimi to a B Hamorii male to get a uniquely patterned spider, isn't that the same thing? And the answer is, and pretty emphatically, no. Because we are talking about breeding in the case of dogs, different breeds, they're still dogs. They're still the same species. They're just different breeds of dogs. So that breeds and species are not the same thing. And I think there's a lot of confusion there. And then when you talk about breeding, say, the ball pythons, you are talking about breeding the same species, just looking for different colorations, different patterns. So the Woma ball python hybrid aside... No one is that I'm aware of, God, I hope this hasn't been happening, nobody is currently breeding boa constrictors to corn snakes in order to create a new hybridized animal. The, the patterns are resulting from breeding the same species together. And that's the same thing with dogs. We're talking about different breeds. All dogs, as different as they may look, are all the same species of animals. So I know it's weird. You take a chihuahua, you take a pit bull, you take a Labrador retriever. They are still Canis lupus familiaris. And mixing the two species doesn't represent a pollution of species DNA. And if you're speaking of purebred dogs, sure, you're, you're polluting the gene pool as far as a purebred animal. But that's a different thing. So we need to get that out of our head. That is number one when people come up with that one. That, ex that needs to be explained post-haste so they understand that we're dealing with two entirely different things there. They are not comparable. The dogs, the ball pythons, not comparable to cross-breeding different species of tarantulas. And then while we're talking about this type of breeding, breeding different dogs together to get new species or these new designer mutts or whatever you want to call it, and then breeding the snakes together, let's not forget that these sometimes create different types of problems, its own set of consequences. So for example, we have many undesirable health issues in certain breeds of dogs like hip problems, breeding problems, skin problems, all different types of little issues that you can get when you do these type of breeding activities. And then you talk about ball pythons, spider ball pythons have the wobble that is a trait that they've bred them to the point where they actually have a defect where they have the little head wobble. People that are into ball pythons will know about that. So let's not forget that sometimes even doing that can have its issue. So let's recognize that breeding different species of tarantulas together is in no way shape or form the same of breeding two ball pythons different color ball pythons together or different breeds of dogs it's a totally different ball game so when that comes up let's make sure that folks understand the difference between the two so another point that often comes up when people start talking about crossbreeding is folks will come in and go, really, seriously, how much does this really happen? Is it really that big of a deal if a person here or there crosses two different species? And a lot of folks will say that, again, the vast majority of tarantulas purchased are never even bred in the first place. You figure if somebody has a, I don't know, 200 slings with a tarantula and they go out to a dealer, the dealer sells them how many people are actually breeding the tarantulas. Their idea is it's really not that big of a deal. There's not much of it going on on out there and that even if it does happen a little bit really what's the big impact on the hobby and the problem with this line of thinking is that even a few successful breeding projects could easily negatively impact the hobby 
Unfortunately, it would be impossible to deduce just how much the hobby has been impacted by either accidental inbreeding or, in some cases, purposeful inbreeding, because many folks don't know what they have. We talked before about the H. gigas. We talked about the T. albopilosis. The curly hairs have become basically a poster child for this because it was to the point where the Honduran version of it has often been referred to as hobby form to kind of differentiate that we're not really sure where these came from or if they've been bred with anything else. So it doesn't take much for an impact because of the fact that they produce so many slings. You talk about, say, Keeper A has P. regalis female that he's looking to breed. And he goes online and finds another keeper that he believes has a male regalis for breeding purposes. And then let's say, unfortunately, that species isn't actually a P. regalis. It is, in fact, a P. formosa. And he breeds and he gets a successful sack. He probably has no idea. In many cases, this happens. Nobody has any idea that they didn't have the right species. P. solitheria can look very similar to each other. And it takes some years of practice to be able to differentiate them. We see all the time people popping up and they'll put up a picture of hey, here's my P. Vitata, and somebody will correct them. Nope, that's not a P. Vitata. It can be a difficult situation. The person doesn't mean to do this, but they have produced slings. They're excited. Next thing you know it, they have sold those slings to other people. They have sold those slings to a distributor, to a retailer, and they sell them all out. Say they even have 100 of them. That's 100 of those crossbred spiders that are now out there for people to get. Now all it takes is a couple of those people to go ahead and take their females or lend out their breeding males and now see how it spreads out. And this is how it happens. And it has happened with P. Slytheria. As a matter of fact, when the Fish and Wildlife Agency were doing their report on P. Slytheria species, that was one of the things they pointed out was that we could not use our hobby versions, our hobby stock of these animals to try to repopulate them in the wild because they said they've been accidentally and even in some cases purposefully hybridized. So they were so polluted that they weren't even worth using to reestablish populations in the wild. That's That kind of sucks because that shoots our whole, hey, we're curating these species argument right in the butt because there's a situation we could have went, hey, you know what? We can breed these piece of Ethereum species in the hobby and put half of them in the hobby, half of them in the wild. No, and obviously that's not how those programs work. We've discussed, Luis and I discussed this a bit when we got into it about the same topic, but it is something that it really kind of shows you how that hybridization impacts the hobby and impacts that idea that we are saving these animals. And that's one of the reasons people get so upset when they hear about it, because it's conceivable this keeps happening. We don't have these species anymore. We won't have these species anymore in the hobby. I'm currently struggling with this one myself because I have been buying Formictibus species for many, many years, trying to grab every one up I can find. And a few years back, folks started selling a spider that was called Formictibus species green. People wanted to breed them. They started buying up males. Well, then we figured out there are three different versions of the green Formictibus. And because there hasn't been a revision on genus Formictibus, we're not sure if they're all the same spider, different species, different lookout. We're not sure what's going on with them. So if it ends up that they are different species and people have been breeding these together, we've just polluted the whole hobby population of them by accidentally breeding two different species. That's how it goes down. So it's one of those things that it sounds like on paper, not a big deal, but I think it, does it happen as much as some alarmists say it does? Probably not. Does it happen more than we probably think it does? I would suspect so. And that's mixing, potentially mixing of species bloodline could honestly have a disastrous effect on the purity of future 
bloodlines running through the hobby. And again, shoots that whole argument we have in the butt that we are trying to save these creatures because they're dying off in the wild. Now, another popular argument that comes up when people start talking about hybridization is people will say, well, hybrids are sterile. So if you breed two different species of spiders together, it shouldn't be an issue. Nature has decided, hey, we're not going to let this go any further. You guys did your little Frankenstein thing here. You paired these two species together. That's it. It's not going to go any further than that. So the thought is, although hybrids can occur, the offspring of such a pairing would be unable to produce young and spread their genes and because of this, even if a keeper was to successfully hybridize two species of tarantulas, the offspring wouldn't be able to reproduce anyway, so hey, no harm, no foul. The problem with this is that many hybridized tarantulas have proven to be just as fertile as their pure counterparts, meaning that the babies can indeed breed and reproduce, meaning that that impure line can continue. Now, I've had discussions with people that are a lot more knowledgeable about this type of stuff than me. I've had people come on before and say, hey, if two different quote-unquote species of spiders can actually reproduce and the, the offspring are indeed fertile, then they're probably not different species to begin with. And I've had, I've heard that whole argument before, but as we've identified these animals, they are different species of spiders. They have, you know, scientists that do the taxonomy, do an exhausted amount of work to identify the differences between the different species. We are now starting to use DNA. Now, perhaps now down the road, if they start doing using DNA more, and this might be something we need to get Luis on for, they start using the DNA more to identify, maybe we start figuring out, yeah, some are different variants. But as it is, we've identified these animals as different species. We've noticed them in different areas in the wild. We've noticed that they have characteristics to continue with these species as they move on and procreate. So we want to make sure we keep those separately. So the bottom line is we can't use that excuse. Well, they're not going to reproduce because they can and will. And that's how we've gotten in this mess with the aforementioned species that we've talked about because people have bred them. They've taken the offspring up, they've grown them up and they have bred the offspring. And then it just keeps that pollution going. One species or type of species hybridization that I like to point out is the Brachypelma bomgartni boimi or baimi hybrids. Now, these are two species that in nature are separated by the Balsas River, so there should be very little opportunity for natural hybridization because people will point to the fact that, hey, it happens in the wild. Remember, when we're talking about different species, they are often separated by some type of natural boundary that keeps the species from mixing. Sure, are there going to be instances of maybe... A a Baumgartney female landing on some type of log, getting washed down the river, ending up on the other side. Absolutely, but it's not something that happens common. So speaking of Brachypelma, Baumgartney baby hybrids, I have one that is likely a hybrid that I picked up as a, it's supposed to be a purebred boimi or baby. I always say boimi or baby because it's one of these ones we get a million pronunciations for. But anyway, I picked up one. I had my suspicions. I talked to somebody who knew about the fact that there had been ones that were purposefully hybridized way back in the day and mine was right at the same age group to be one of those. These folks did it on purpose. All of those animals went out there sold as purebreds and who knows how many of them were bred and reproduced other hybrids down the line. It's, it's a, a situation that you can't calculate just how much of an impact and we can speculate. We can go, hey, hopefully the majority of the people didn't breed. I know I had planned on pairing mine, but as soon as I figured out that she was likely a hybrid, sadly, she will never feel this, this spidery touch of a male. It's just one of those situations where it's done incalculable amount of damage to the hobby, to that sp specific species. 
So yes, these different species will often produce offspring, and yes, these offspring will often be fertile and be able to reproduce. So that argument, unfortunately, for the folks that are pro-hybridization, does not hold any water. It's not something that we should consider. Now, a lot of times what happens, and this again comes from the whole ball python background, usually your folks that have bred other animals for colors and patterns, they will say, just think of all the cool colors and patterns we can get. This is a big argument where people say they want to do an experiment, a cool experiment. And I always put cool in quotes because I don't find it very cool, but let's see what the offspring will look like just for the fun of it. Let's see what happens. The thought process can be boiled down to species A looks nice, species B looks nice, so their offspring will look totally awesome, right? Now, my argument for this one is always the same. There are over 900 identified species of tarantulas in the world. That number is likely much higher. We're not only still discovering some, but we still have many in the hobby that are just have that species moniker because we're not sure what they are. So there are so many different colors and patterns out there available already that do we really need humans mucking with them to create more? I honestly, I've, my goal is to one day keep as many different species, many of the different species out there available as possible. I mean, by, when my time comes to an end, it'd be nice to look back and say, oh my God, I've kept 500 different species of tarantulas. Obviously, I'll never get them all, never get anywhere near them all, but that's a goal of mine. And, and I'm admitting, I'm conceding, I will never get them all. Why do we need to create more? Let's just work on breeding. If we're going to be breeding, let's breed the ones that we already have that are pure species and make sure that they stay in the hobby. What is the point of going out and making out a bunch of other Frankenstein monster type of tarantulas of all different colors when the majority of the ones that are in the hobby right now, they come in, we get a bunch of them in, people get them go, oh, these are beautiful. And next thing you know, you never see them again. Let's work more on that instead of wasting our energy on creating some supposed quote unquote designer tarantulas. So the next argument is one that comes up quite a bit and kind of irritates me because having produced slings before, having a large collection, having to care for a lot of different tarantulas and spiders at any given time right now, I think we're up around 260 animals or so. I get what it takes to deal with a lot of animals, but this argument is usually the old, but hey, if a keeper breeds them and doesn't sell the offspring, what's the big deal? The ones that take this stance usually adhere to the argument that as long as the slings aren't sold, there should be no issue after. After all, if the slings are produced and kept in the person's own collection, who are they hurting in the first place? And folks in this camp often see the tarantulas as possessions rather than animals and pets. So it's in their mind, therefore, it's nobody's business if they decide to mix some of them up to see what results they get. It's like a little science experiment. And who the heck are you to tell them that they can't do that? Some will even go so far to take that old argument that, hey, if they couldn't, if they weren't supposed to do this in nature. They wouldn't be able to do it in the first place. So what is the harm of mixing them up and just keeping them? And the problem I have with this one, and I've heard of this one bear out with the negative consequences before, the amount of work needed and risk involved far outweigh any reward you could get. So let's just consider the logic of this for a moment. First off, we're already quite familiar with the species that can be successfully crossbred. So there's no real information to be gleaned from it. There's nothing to be gained. I would go through, I could easily go through and name all the ones that we know that can hybridize, but I don't want to give anybody any ideas, quite frankly. So when people say I'm going to do an experiment, it's like, you don't have to, it's been done. Like, 
like it, you're not experimenting any. It's like somebody going out there going, hey, I have this idea. I'm going to fly a kite and I'm going to put a key on the ring and I'm going to fly it in a lightning storm. Hey, buddy, it's been done before. It's There's nothing new to be gained from this. So I don't get why they would want to experiment with breeding hybrids when there are so many species out there that we want in the hobby that are purebred that we still don't know how to breed well. I mean, people still struggle sometimes with breeding C. cyanio pubicans, Zenesta species, the one I hear people have a hard time with. How about we focus our energy on spiders, purebred spiders that people want that we can't get enough of in the hobby? Wouldn't that make more sense? What is the point of going through all the pairing for something that we know the outcome of? And now you have a bunch of slings and what are you going to do with them? Here's the deal. Many spiders produce sacs containing hundreds of slings. Some of these Brachypelma species that people are always trying to breed together, you're talking four, five, six, seven hundred slings. That's a lot of slings and a lot of work for something that you're just doing to see what happens. And might I point out that when raising slings, it's time intensive. It takes a lot of time. You eventually have to separate them all into little enclosures. You have to feed them all. I mean, if you've if you've never tried to feed five or six hundred slings before, give it a try. It takes forever. I don't know how people that deal in tarantulas do with all that. You're talking about thousands of animals. It takes a lot of time. And for what reward? A bunch of worthless hybrid spiders? I don't understand why someone would spend the amount of time for that. And now the other thing that people will come up with, which drives me nuts, is they'll go, hey, so I'll breed them, I'll get some slings, and then I'll just stick them in a freezer. I'll, I'll euthanize them and keep a handful in my collection. And I think that's pretty deplorable. Regardless of if they're hybrids, they're still living animals. To produce something just to destroy hundreds of it just for your own pleasure, that's that's somebody we somebody that wants to take that approach. We don't want them anywhere near this hobby. That's the way I see it. And then let's say the person that breeds these goes ahead and keeps a handful of them and raises them up. What's going to end up happening with those? Do you really think they're going to keep eight hybrid spiders that they really can't do anything with? And even worse, there are people out there that will try to convince you that they're going to keep all of them in their collection. Do you really think that people are going to do that? They're going to probably end up selling them off. Who knows? I've seen folks sell them off. And this is this is what scares Zach out of me. There are folks out there that will advertise these are hybrids and sell them off to people. And unfortunately, the people buying them probably don't know any better. Those of us that know better don't want anything to do with them. Those that don't know better are the ones that are going to get them, grow them up, and try to breed them. So again, you are purposely putting worthless, for lack of a better term, mutt spiders into the hobby. It, it, again, the experiment makes zero sense. And even if we, for the sake of argument, say the person breeds 200 of them and God forbid they go, you know what? I'm going to raise these 200. These are my babies. These are my burden. Now I'm going to raise these to maturity. What happens if that person, something happens to them? They end up having to sell, you know, God forbid the person passes away. They have to, some, the spiders can live a long, long time. They have to sell off the collection. They're going to come through and go, nobody's going to know they're crossbred spiders. And go, this guy's got 200 of these spiders. We're going to get them out into general population. Just none of it makes any logical sense, quite frankly. So when it comes down to the argument, I'm doing this for my own little experiment, I don't buy it. I, it doesn't make rational sense. I've argued with people before. I had a guy that said he was going to do it. He actually produced slings, and I lost touch with him because he stopped answering because I'm like, well, what are you going to do with all these slings now? And nothing else was said. So God only knows where those slings ended up. But this was somebody that their excuse was, I just want to see if it works. Hey, it works, and now I have all these slings, and then radio silence. So 
We can all speculate on where those ended up, but something tells me I think he ended up with 400 and something slings. Something tells me that they didn't all end up being raised in his own personal collection. So that argument doesn't hold water. It just makes zero sense because we know what happens when we mix them. We know which ones are viable, and there's nothing to be gained from it. There's literally no payoff, especially when you could be breeding purebreds that everybody needs and wants in the hobby. Now, another argument that pops up quite a bit is folks will come up and go, hey, it happens in nature. If it happens in nature, then obviously this isn't a big deal. This is, I had somebody come on and they brought up some interesting points that were talking about biodiversity and how a lot of these specimens that we currently have in the hobby that we are calling pure were probably once upon a time different specimens that intermingled and produced this new species. That may be. That's nature, and I understand that there are going to be instances where, like we talked earlier about the Baumgartney and the Bamey, there are going to be instances where one male gets to a female, and you do get that mixing in the wild. It's it's we can't deny that. However, crossbreeding occurring naturally in nature and crossbreeding in somebody's living room or tarantula room are two totally different things. Two tarantulas meeting up in the wild, happening to breed. The female produces the sac. A lot of those babies are going to get out, and we know about the ones that create the bigger sacs is because of the high mortality rate of the slings. Probably not many of them get out there. Will there be some spread of that, the, the quote-unquote polluted genes? Yes, but that's a lot different from Larry deciding I'm going to take two different spiders and made them in my living room in a plastic bucket. That's just somebody playing Dr. Frankenstein and playing God by purposely mixing DNA. And then again, we've already said, for what purpose? Nobody wants the slings. So to claim that it happens in the wild and therefore we should be doing, hopefully we understand the difference of things happening in nature and things happening in somebody's collection or somebody playing around and playing with these spiders to make, I don't know, designer spiders. Hopefully we recognize that those aren't comparable. So those are the normal arguments. Those are the the counter arguments for them. As you can probably guess from this, my own personal opinion is that I see absolutely no reason for anyone anyone to purposely crossbreed two different species of tarantulas. There's, I think, hopefully as I've illustrated through this, there's zero to gain. There's, in terms of pros, you may end up with some mutant looking spider that looks kind of cool, cool, but is in terms of cons, there are many, many. And again, I, I can't help, I was going to start off by reading that mass extinction article, but it honestly just depresses me too much. But that got me thinking about it, that, again, we're taking one step closer to that idea that at some point, tarantula hobbyists may account for the majority of these species still left alive in the world. We can get into the whole argument if we contribute to it, because I do think we do in some ways, but that is the the truth of it. There may be a point down the line that that's it. These species will die off in their natural habitat, and we just got to hope that people keep them going in captivity. So we should be concentrating our breeding on keeping the species that we already have and keeping them in the hobby so they don't disappear. Because I did a podcast a while back, the ones are, you know, species that are quote unquote extinct in the hobby. Those are the ones that they come out, somebody finds this brand new spider, everybody gets the slings, they raise them, nobody breeds them, and they just disappear. And it's 10 years down the road, you go, hey, wait a minute. 
what happened to these guys? It's sad because there's a chance we will never see them in a hobby again. And it's sad also because it means somebody at some point snuck into the area these guys came from, collected a bunch of adults right out of their natural habitat, probably in a place where they're already suffering from habitat loss or, you know, being killed by humans, whatever it may be. And they brought them into the hobby for what? For them to die off in the hobby and not go anywhere. So we need to focus our attention on breeding the ones that we already have the purebreds to keep the hobby stocked make sure that we still have these animals there and not waste our time with these silly scientific games or trying to hybridize these animals for designer tarantulas. Now, before I lay the topic completely to bed, there was one thing that people sometimes say that I I've, it came out the last time this argument came up and somebody brought it up and it was kind of an addition to the arguments. Folks will be like, well, what happens if somebody produces hybrids and they just sell them as hybrids, we talked before, you know, people can put them out there as hybrids. The problem is the majority of informed people don't want anything to do with crossbreeds. We want nothing to do with them. If somebody's, that's not something I like and go, Ooh, let me check this out. That's a yee. I don't want anything to do with that. And then again, when people get these hybrids, there's always going to be the temptation that they've got to move them. Nobody else is going to want them. So the temptation would be there to basically mislabel them as purebreds in order to sell them. And I know for a fact that this has happened in the hobby where people have had the hybrids, tried to get rid of hybrids, nobody wanted them. So they turn around, they said, nope, these are purebreds, so-and-so, I don't want to say the species. And next thing you know what, they're selling them off to somebody to sell into the hobby, knowing full well that they are not purebreds. So that one doesn't hold any water as well. Nobody wants hybrids. You're not going to move two, three, 400 hybrids to people. That, and even then, you can't guarantee that they're not going to breed them or sell them off. They're not going to be mislabeled and sold back into the hobby. It just, it doesn't, again, no way, shape or form do you look at this that it makes any sense. And sadly, over the years, you know, God, it's been a while now, but over the years, I've spoken to many people who come in with these emails that they're excited because they think they've thought of something that nobody's thought of before. And a lot of them, you you explain this is the original reason I wrote this article is because I was getting a lot of people asking about it. And it was it's much easier. I don't have time to fire off a, a 2000 word email to somebody. So it's much easier to go here, read this and let me know if you have any questions. So that's what kind of spurred all this. A lot of folks asking about it and most of them again, read it and they go, man, I didn't even think of it that way. I was thinking of them as like dogs or whatever. And it's good. It's game over. They're done. They're not entertaining anymore. Sadly, there are folks out there that aren't dissuaded. I've met a few of them. It's infuriating to me when you explain everything and they find, you know, again, they the same arguments I just presented here and then counter argued against. They don't want to hear it. No, nope, this is going to be something new. Nobody's done this before. These are, I'll just keep them in my own collection. I'll just sell them as hybrids, whatever. It bothers me every time it happens because you pray to God they're not successful. And then if they are successful, you just sit there and wonder the next time you see one of those species for sale, if those could have been the ones that this person bred. Because again, when there's money involved, when you're sitting there holding hundreds of slings and you realize I can just say these are purebred and make, you know, 10, 15 bucks per sling on them. Money, money is a big motivator. And so it, I, I doubt that most of those instances end with the spiders being frozen, which again would be disgusting or just kept in a personal collection. I think they probably get out and about. So please, I implore anybody that's hearing this for the first time is just getting into the hobby. Hopefully now you're informed this won't, you won't ever entertain a thought of this. But again, when you guys hear folks that are expressing these type of ideas, the one thing you don't want to get is confrontational. I've seen it happen too many times before where people start 
trying to dissuade them by saying things like, you can't do that, and that would be completely irresponsible, and it's not your right, or whatever. You got to be very careful how you appreciate, because that kind of pushes the oppositional defiant button, where people go, you can't tell me what to do with my animals. I bought these. I own them. I can do whatever I want. And I've heard that one before. I've encountered it before personally, where the guy said, I appreciate your comments, but unfortunately, these are my animals. I paid for them, and I'll do whatever the hell I want with them. So you want to try to make the person stand a reason, and the best way is to dissuade them is to really drive home the point that it's been done before and nobody wants them. Like you're not doing anything new here. Nobody wants them. And a lot of folks will back down when they realize that there is no financial gain to be had from it. Because I think in my experience, many of the people that try to do this are ones that think they're going to make big bucks off. I literally had a guy come to me, no joke, and I think he posted online about this. If I remember correctly, Billy said the same, like after he talked to me about it, he posted online, he wanted to try to crossbreed, oh boy, Theraphosa blondi or Theraphosa sturmi with C. cyanopubicins. Let that one rattle around. He's like, can you imagine if you had a 10 to 12 inch spider that looked like a C. cyanopubicins? And I tried to explain, hey, buddy, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that one's going to be a no-go completely, not even the same genus. But he was convinced he was going to give it a try. So, I've, you know, again, I've heard crazy things over the years. The best way to combat these is with knowledge, with facts, and expressing the fact that there's nothing to be gained from it. So that will do it for this one. It looks like the temperature is creeping up. We are a uh, ooh, a warm 68.5 degrees up here now. Now, normally I keep my tarantula room 70. This thermostat is usually set at 73, which means my lower shelves are usually right around 70. My higher shelves can get anywhere from 75 to 76 degrees. So this is a little bit low for it. But again, everybody, I'm looking around the room and people are out and about. I'm going to do some feeding in a minute. Luckily, the weather's warming up, so I won't have to worry about this much longer. But do know that for those of you that freak out, as much as we may know better, those of you that freak out when things get a little chilly in your transfer room, I totally 100% get it. That's been the last two days for me. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me at TomsBigSpiders.com. You can find me on YouTube, TomsBigSpiders. Maybe taking a break for a little bit. I got a new theme song coming soon. And quite frankly, I've been, I want to spend some more time on some videos that I haven't been able to do. And they're ones I really can't get done. Usually what I do is I shoot a video on a weekend or on Friday night or Saturday, put it together, get it up by Saturday night or Sunday. And these are ones I need to spend some more time on. And I just have a lot going on here. So I might take a little bit. We'll see how it goes, but I should probably be warning the people over on YouTube, but I know a lot of you guys cross over. So anyway, if I, I go quiet, I will let people know, but if I go quiet for a while, that's it. It's just because I'm taking time to put some things together. Some ones I really don't have to work on, but they're going to require more than just a weekend of editing. So that'll do it for this one. As always, guys, stay safe. If you're where I am right now, stay warm, and we'll catch you all next time.